So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the long robe with sleeves that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you, as we do week by week, to be here to join us this morning, and we trust that you are here with us. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please sit. Today, I'd like to talk about two very short sentences, neither of which we ever say out loud, but both of which we often think. Two very short sentences that I think are grave theological errors. These sentences come up when we think about ourselves and when we think about God. And both of them came to my mind as I read the story of Joseph and his murderous Brothers, Here they are, my two sentences for the sermon this morning. Sentence number one, I'm not that bad. Sentence number two, God's not that good. I'm not that bad, and God's not that good. And those sentences sound simple, but those two errors, those two mistakes are not only really common, they're also the foundation of, of every other theological problem and mistaken belief we might have. And we're going to look at Joseph's story this morning to see what I mean. In our reading this morning from Genesis 37, we have the story of Joseph's beating and his being sold into slavery by his brothers. They treat him so shamefully that that first sentence almost comes out of our mouths without thinking. I'm not that bad almost murdering your flesh and blood and then selling him into slavery? In fact, as a Bible reader, and I think in an effort to somehow exonerate Joseph's brothers and by extension to exonerate ourselves, we immediately recall all the ridiculous things that Joseph did to antagonize his brothers. Yes, he has been gifted by God with these vivid prophetic dreams, but the naive joy with which he seems to torment his brothers with them is completely absurd. If you read the verses that our reading skips, if you look in your leaflet, you'll see that it skips from verse 4 to verse 12. We read about Joseph and his relationship with his brothers. First, of course, he is the favorite son of his father, Jacob. And as a symbol of that favor, he's the recipient of this famous coat of many colors. And his status as the favorite enrages his brothers. And we wouldn't ordinarily blame Joseph for this. It's not really his fault that he's the favorite. But his behavior in the next several verses is so annoying as to imply that he has no problem playing up his role as the favorite for all it's worth. Joseph has two dreams that we read about in Scripture. And the first one He dreams that he and his brothers are in the field binding sheaves of wheat. And Joseph's sheave rises up and stands upright. And behold, Joseph says, 
Your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Of course, he feels compelled to share his dream with his brothers. And when his brothers ask him incredulously if he's implying that he's going to rule over them, you can almost see his smug face and his shrugged shoulders. God gave me the dream. He said it, not me. Then, of course, he has another dream. Again, quickly shared with his brothers in which the sun and the moon and 11 stars all bow down to him. And that, of course, is his mother and his father now, in addition to his 11 siblings, all bowing down to Joseph. And so his brothers, being human beings, decide to kill him. Now, there are extenuating circumstances. Joseph seems not that great to be part of your family. Maybe there are even extremely extenuating circumstances, but I'm not going to exonerate Joseph's brothers. The Bible does not exonerate Joseph's brothers. And not only is the Bible not going to exonerate Joseph's brothers, it's not going to exonerate you. It's not going to exonerate me. We may accurately say that we've never beaten a sibling and sold them into slavery, implying on some level that compared to Joseph's brothers, we're doing pretty good. But Jesus would surely respond, who are you calling good? Only the Father in heaven is good. Don't miss the radicality of that. Only The Father in heaven is good. Jesus says that to a rich young man in Mark chapter 10 and again in Luke chapter 18. And in Matthew 5, Jesus addresses anger specifically. He says, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So let us not read the story of Joseph's brothers and try to wriggle free of its judgment, claiming that we're not like them or that Joseph had it coming, or any other thing. The Bible calls them killers, and it levies the same judgment against you and against me. We, who make fun of someone behind their back, we who smirk at someone else's incompetence, we who let our anger override our love, We who are quick to divide the world into enemies and friends, allies and opponents. We are killers, liable to the hell of fire. (laughs) Welcome to Grace Anglican Church. You're a killer, liable to the hell of fire. But you didn't come to church to hear the preacher say that to you this morning. And it sounds like an overstatement, doesn't it? An exaggeration. But humor me for just a second. 
How about a quick rundown of just some of the commandments? Have no other gods. Do not make for yourselves any idol. Okay, we're 0 for 2. We are experts in idol making. We can turn anything into an object of our worship. Family, job, success. Sometimes it seems like the creator of the world is the God we are least likely to worship. You shall not steal, lie, murder, or covet. Okay, that's what, 0 for 6 now? Still a failing grade. In light of Jesus' internalization of the commandments, coveting is stealing, lust is adultery, anger is murder, we are, each one of us, thieves and liars and murderers. And so a shocking diagnosis is revealed. Joseph's brothers are actually a perfect description of us. We are just like them. And the prognosis? What does the Bible say happens to sinners like Joseph's brothers? Sinners like you and me? Well, not to mince words, but the answer is death. And destruction. Ephesians 2 notes that we were dead in trespasses and sins. After all, the wages of sin, according to Romans 6, is death. In Ezekiel 37, the prophet is placed in a valley of dry, lifeless bones, symbolizing a people without the enlivening presence of the Holy Spirit. In Romans 3, the judgment is spelled out incredibly vividly. None is righteous, says Paul. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Lot's disobedient wife is turned to a pillar of salt. Ananias and Sapphira tell what you and I would certainly call a little white lie and are struck dead in their tracks. Psalm 11 came to mind this week as just one of many verses that should strike fear into the heart of the sinner. The Lord tests the righteous, it reads, but his soul hates the wicked. And the one who loves violence, let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. The biblical message is clear. Don't you dare think even for a second, that compared to a holy God and his righteous commands, you could survive. Not for a moment. Don't ever say, I'm not that bad. Because it's just not true. The evangelist 
Jack Miller used to make the joke, cheer up, you're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine. But Jack Miller's quote doesn't end there. And the biblical story of the sinner doesn't end there. The Christian story doesn't end there. The story of Joseph's brothers doesn't end there. And your story doesn't end there either. Here's Miller's full quote. Cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine. And you're more loved than you ever dared hope. You're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine, and you are more loved than you ever dared hope. Living as we do on the other side of the resurrection, the other side of Jesus' empty tomb, we know that death and destruction is not the end of our story. Perhaps you heard the tense that Paul used in Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, he says, we have been made alive together with Christ. If you've read the rest of Ezekiel 37, you know that those dry bones come to life by the power of God. Romans 3 ends with the good news of the intervention of a Savior, Jesus Christ. Even Joseph's brothers are rescued and incredibly They are rescued by Joseph himself. The very one they sinned against becomes their savior. Eight chapters after he's sold into slavery, down in Genesis 45, Joseph has risen to a place of prominence in Egypt and a famine has ravaged his family's homeland. His brothers have been dispatched to Egypt for help, to beg for help, and little do they know it is to Joseph that they are going to have to beg. If you know the story, you know that they don't recognize Joseph, and it's sort of as a surprise that he reveals himself to them. And Genesis says that when Joseph tells them who he really is, quote, his brothers could not answer him. So dismayed, were they at his presence. Their fear struck them mute. You all know the feeling you get in the pit of your stomach when you are caught. When there's no excuse that will adequately explain your behavior, when there's nothing you can say in your defense, you are guilty. And there's nothing you can do about it. You can imagine the scene in that room with Joseph's brothers standing before the one they meant to kill and sold into slavery. It's it's like the scene of Isaiah's vision in chapter 6 of his prophecy. Isaiah sees himself in the throne room of Almighty God and he is overwhelmed by the power and holiness that he finds there. He feels just like Joseph's brothers must have felt. And he cries out, Woe is me, I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, 
the Lord of hosts. I'm going to die. I'm a sinner standing in front of holiness. This is what a man says when he knows Psalm 11 that I read to you before. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. So what happens? Is Isaiah destroyed? Does Joseph rain coals of righteous vengeance on his brothers? No. Because while you are a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine, you are more loved than you ever dared hope. The good news of the Bible is that the very one who was sinned against becomes the Savior. Joseph weeps tears of joy, proclaims that what his brothers intended for evil, God used for good, and then provides for his entire extended family for the duration of the famine. Joseph meets great evil with greater good. His generosity and grace is almost unbelievable. And here is the second great mistake we must avoid. If the first mistake is thinking that we are not that bad, the second is thinking that God can't possibly be that good. Not that loving, not that merciful. Surely we think these killers will be destroyed. Surely the tempter in our subconscious tells us our sins are too bad to be overcome. Surely we deserve and will receive death. Surely God isn't that merciful. Remember Psalm 11, that terrifying psalm about God hating the wicked and raining coals on them. It also says that the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds and the upright shall behold his face. So this becomes our question. What good news can come from a holy God? How do we get from wicked to righteous? What has to happen for a sinner like us to behold the face of God? Well, the same thing has to happen for us as happened for Joseph's brothers. The one we sinned against must become our Savior. And Jesus Christ is just that. Holy God become perfect Savior. Our good news is the intercession of a righteous one on our behalf, a substitute. St. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God's Wrath, his righteous anger, was poured out on Jesus, the only one who could bear it, so that you could be called Jesus' rightful name, blameless child of God. You and me, justly convicted thieves, liars, murderers, 
But it is to thieves, liars, and murderers that Jesus has come. Jesus came for you. He came to take your sin onto himself and to give you his righteousness. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans chapter 5, 6 to 8. And it is the good news for Joseph's brothers. And it is good news for you and it is good news for me. Jesus came for sinners like us. So cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine. And you're more loved than you ever dared hope. A holy God means that none of us can ever say, I'm not that bad. A merciful God means that none of us can ever say he can't be that loving. We are, each one of us, that bad. And yet, in and on account of Jesus Christ, a miracle has happened. A holy God loves you. You are that bad, but he is that good. Amen.